Ibrahim wa sallallahu ala ashraf al-anbiya wa sayyid al-mursaleen wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam ajma'im. Greetings and peace. I'm praying everybody's well. Sending love and light to you and yours. I'm excited about introducing this podcast episode, but before I do, um, there's just a few things I wanted to mention. Um, Alhamdulillah, I'm actually uh, taking a little bit of a break from performances. I'm not traveling uh, for the next month or so, inshallah. Um, And I'm going to be working on developing a few new courses for Rumi Center for Spirituality and the Arts. Um, As many of you know, Rumi Center for Spirituality and the Arts is um, predominantly an online platform uh, at this stage where we've been teaching courses on writing. Um, The first course that we've been offering every quarter now is called Opening the Eye of the Heart, uh, Writing as Spiritual Practice. And in it, we study uh, much of the great spiritual poetry, um, particularly from within the Sufi tradition, but we also bring in great uh, spiritual poets from various traditions, uh, East and West. And um, it's been uh, really amazing and really a beautiful opportunity to have people from all over the world take this course and to offer it um, every quarter now um, for about five quarters, I guess. Um, and alhamdulillah, it's just been beautiful. Um, but I'm taking a, a few months off. I don't know exactly when we'll be doing opening the eye of the heart now. Um, we, we, in November in Rabi al-Awwal, we did a course for the Prophet sallallahu um, drawing near to the beloved poetry and praise of the Prophet, which was beautiful. Um, and, uh, but in the next few months, I'm going to be developing a few uh, other courses. Uh, one that I'm super excited about is that I'm working on one about Maulana Rumi, kind of the poetry and philosophy of Rumi, because Rumi is so beloved and such an amazing poet. Uh, but also, when things become popular, uh, often that means that uh, the knowledge of those things becomes often superficial. So we're going to try to do a deep dive into kind of the themes, the philosophy behind it, some of the meaning, some of the symbolism uh, of his work. And we we do discuss that. Um, we do discuss that in Opening the Eye of the Heart, but it's much more kind of introductory level. So this is going to be a kind of deeper dive, inshallah. So I'm really excited about that. And welcome um, all of you to check that out. And we should have the registration up uh, at Rumi Center uh, workshops, rumicenterworkshops.com soon. And then I'm working on another course um, about the craft of writing, the craft of poetry, particular, you know, prosody, um, the parts of poetry. Uh, because as we know, poetry is, it, it is meaning, but it is also form. Uh, it's what is said as well as how it's said. And um, that's the meaning in the music, you know. So, inshallah, um, we we hope to, you know, develop a course for writers who really want to advance in their craft. And we're working on both those courses. Alhamdulillah. Um, so, yeah, check them out. 
and uh, we'd love to have you uh, at one of the courses. So, alhamdulillah, today's podcast is with Shabhana Xavier, and uh, Shabhana uh, is uh, a professor and somebody who uh, is at Queen's University, and um, she focuses on contemporary global Islam and Sufism, uh, with particular interests in North America and South Asia. Um, and I heard about her work through... Um, how did I hear about her work? I heard about her work through uh, Rory Dixon, um, who we've had on the podcast uh, a couple times. And they uh, co-authored uh, with Mina Sharifi Funk uh, a book on contemporary Sufism, piety, politics, and popular culture. Um, But the book that we focus on um, and her research that we focus on in this podcast, in this episode, is her work on uh, Bawa Muhyiddin, also known as Guru Bawa. And that book is called Sacred Spaces and Transnational Networks in American Sufism. Bawa Muhyiddin and Contemporary Shrine Cultures. Um, so anyway, we get into the book pretty in depth and his life pretty in depth. So I'm not going to say too much more about that. But um, definitely I loved uh, this this topic. Uh, the figure of Bawa is, you know, he's someone who is almost like a mythical figure in Sufism in America in the 20th century, and um, still ha- has a huge uh, effect. And we get into all of that, and mashallah, uh, Shabhana has uh, is really just a, a kind of wealth of information and knowledge about that subject. Um, lastly, I wanted to say, um, please do support the podcast. If you uh, enjoy the podcast, there's a few ways that you can support. And although this podcast is largely a labor of love, um, your support is greatly um, appreciated and, in fact, needed for us to, to maintain and to uh, do it with excellence and with consistency. Um, so a few ways that you can support are word of mouth, just sharing it, um, you know, spread it far and wide to anyone who might be interested in these conversations. Uh, and then also on iTunes, you can like and rate, uh, comment. All those things are very useful for uh, iTunes ratings and things like that. Um, and then lastly, you could support financially. Uh, we have a Patreon. Uh, Patreon is a site which allows people to support content providers um, and that they are connecting with or that they are, uh, you know, enjoying. And uh, our Patreon page is patreon.com slash path and present. Um, you can also find that link on our iTunes and uh, SoundCloud pages. And you can give uh, any amount. Um one dollar or five or whatever uh, monthly and that's really helpful for us 
And if everybody who is a regular listener were to give a, a dollar or five dollars, uh, we'd be totally straight. So uh, please consider doing that if you are able. Um, and there's some perks on Patreon. And in fact, we're going to uh, increase that. Uh, and one of them that we're going to start to do is some of these conversations, especially the ones that we do um, um, over Zoom, uh, we're going to share the videos uh, with our Patreon supporters. So anyone who supports on Patreon will be able to check out uh, some of the videos. We won't do them, I don't think, for every podcast, just logistically at this point. But we'll do some of them. And uh, those will be exclusively for our Patreon supporters at this point. So that's anybody who supports with a dollar or more uh, gets to check out the videos. So... Uh, if that interests you, uh, that's one of the, the perks that our Patreon supporters will get, inshallah. So, without further ado, uh, I give you Shabhana Xavier. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa about your your book um i think i guess a good starting place is um the book is called sacred spaces trans and transnational networks in american sufism bawa muhyiddin and contemporary shrine cultures so that's yeah. a, a lot to to chew on but i think the place to start is uh who was bawa who is guru bawa and uh, i'm sure that can unfold into the rest of the work? Um, that is the impossible question to answer. Um, who is Bawa? Uh, so actually that question is what prompted the whole project. Um, I, I kind of had this, so I encountered Bawa in a course on Islamic mysticism in undergrad nearly, I guess, over a decade ago um, when I was at York University. And um, he just was a very curious figure to me, partly because he only spoke Tamil and I'm also Sri Lankan and speak Tamil. Um, so there just was an affinity culturally to me and linguistically. Um, and so that resulted in me kind of sending out some emails to the fellowship and uh, getting connected to the branch. There's a branch in Toronto. Um, so I got connected to them and then I got connected to the community in Philadelphia, which is headquartered. Um, so this question of who this figure was, who was kind of very curious to me, um, you know, kind of, you know, who's this guy with a turban, um, not speaking any English, having this much traction with an American audience who doesn't speak Tamil as well. Like that was kind of just very curious and fascinating to me, especially as someone who didn't meet him. Um, so this really prompted this entire, my PhD dissertation and then this book um, on seeking out who this figure is. And, um, and a lot of the stories I got were from his followers, from his disciples. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I did is I went back to Sri Lanka to where Bao was originally from um, in the north. Um, and I spent a lot of time with his disciples there. And in Sri Lanka, there was a civil war for three decades. It's the same war that displaced my family. Um, it's the same war that's displaced many people. And so there was kind of, you know, ruptures in the narratives that I was able to capture because a lot of people were displaced. But what I did find were his spaces that were still there. And so I spoke with a lot of, you know, of his Hindu devotees. Um, there were Buddhists, there were Muslims. Um, and, you 
know, I kept asking them, who's Bawa? Who's Bawa? And they kept saying there, you know, he was a guy who just came out of the jungles one day. And I was like, there has to be more, right? There has to be more that they could give me. And they said, no, I mean, he showed up one day. He was encountered by these pilgrims, these two Hindu pilgrims. Um, his dialect was hard for them to understand. So um, I think that's a lot of um, people like myself and another scholar who's worked on him, Frank Quorum, to suggest that maybe he was from South India and then came to, to Sri Lanka for a pilgrimage. And they found him at a site called, um, a site in Katargama, which is um, a site that both Hindus and Muslims go for. And Muslims go there to venerate or seek out Hither, the mystical um, figure, right? And whereas Hindus go there to seek out Murugan. So there's this story in Sri Lanka, both, you know, this kind of fascinating proximity or intimacy between these figures of Morgan and Hither. And so I think that the fact that he was first discovered there and that's when he met his Hindu pilgrims really sets the tone for the ministry that he would form, which is this kind of bringing people together of these different religious traditions. Um, Could and so, you just briefly for some of our listeners who may not know the story of Hither or uh, Morgan to just briefly summarize who they were? Yeah, um, so we hear about Hither actually from, um, so he's not mentioned in the Quran. Um, he is mentioned, um, stories about him develop, um, and these stories are really based on this interaction um, between Moses and, and Hither. Um, so there's a um, nameless servant that's mentioned in the Quran in Surah um, chapter 18, and um, where Moses is kind of seeking um, eternal life, right? And there's a story with this fish. And for a lot of Sufis, this is one of the most um, mystical, most fascinating um, passages, primarily because Moses goes on a journey with this figure we don't know, but apparently has um, access to knowledge that even Moses, a prophetic figure, one who brought the law, does not have access to. So they go on this journey, and this journey is it's awesome. It's like an awesome story. Um, and so they go and they get into these bunch of adventures. One consists of, you know, this figure um, sinking a boat and a kid being killed, and Moses is like like, yo, what are you doing? <laughs> like, this is not kosher. Like, this is yeah. not right. Um, so Moses, throughout the time, keeps questioning, but the servants said, no, the only way that you could share this journey with me is if you don't ask questions. And Moses was like, okay, okay, I want to ask questions, but of course he keeps failing. Mm -hmm. And at some point, um, the servant says, you have to leave. Like, we can't do this anymore. And Moses says, can you tell me what all this was about? At least I could go with a state of peace. Um, and so he reveals to him that he's doing this work, which is really the mandate of God, that even a prophetic figure like Moses is not able to, to understand. And so this story is often used as the premise to um, kind of advocate this idea that you need a shake on your journey of, you know, return to the divine. Mm -hmm. Um, and Sufism on this path. Um, and this is really shared by a lot of mystical traditions, that you need a guru, a swami, a figure that'll help you. And so a lot of figures um, use this tradition to kind of have the basis of the, the Murshid Murid relationship. Right. Yeah, and just that, that interesting interplay between outward knowledge and inward esoteric mystical knowledge and how, you know, at the end of the day, even, you know, Moses who brought the law and is in kind of the embodiment of the messenger of the law in the right way, he still doesn't see necessarily all of the inward realities which Khidr is privy to. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's really what this is about in the sense of you could understand the letter, you could understand the form, but you may not understand the essence. You need a guide to help you understand the essence. Yeah. 
Um, and the tradition of Morgan and Hinduism, I mean, there's a lot of variations, um, but uh, Morgan is said to have gone to this place called Kadragama um, to be there with his wife, um, Baliyama, and so they're there together. And Morgan is seen as an important deity that provides access to a lot of people. And for a lot of Sri Lankan Hindus, uh, Morgan is the key figure. And so curiously, a lot of Bawa's Hindu disciples felt that Bawa was a reincarnation or a manifestation of Morgan, actually. And so they, they'd see him as a deity, a godlike figure, which of course was a little bit um, challenging for Hindu devotees. But again, we could talk a little bit about, for Muslim devotees, but we could mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about the complexity of who Bawa is. Um, and so anyway, in the, in the genesis of this, this organization or this movement or this figure, we already see the kind of complexities of his deep entrenchment in like a mystical Sufi tradition and also a Hindu tradition, which really is going to expand on like continuously throughout his ministry. And I still haven't answered the question who Bawa is. Um, usually, well, let me maybe let me. I'll tell you what I know, and then you can correct me. So I definitely have the a legendary version, right? That is passed down. So this is what I've heard: <clears throat> is that Bawa came out of the jungle one day, which you alluded to, in Sri Lanka, and people found him and immediately realized that he was this holy man, profound figure of spiritual power you know, an enlightened master. And he, you know, was essentially guiding people and uh, kind of miracle working in Sri Lanka. And then somehow, and I'm not even sure how it happens, but someone in America finds out and he ends up in America. And what happens then, and I believe he's based in Philadelphia, is a whole circle of disciples Um, gather around him and this is I guess in the 60s I'm I'm assuming although it may have been the 70s I'm not sure and he um, you know which means this is the kind of guru from the east uh, phase and so everyone is kind of turning east for spirituality people have encountered mystical states through dropping acid and other type of things in a mass scale you know the Beatles have popularized this as dominant uh, culture, people are experiencing these realities. And so they're looking for traditions which emphasize the inward spiritual uh, realization as opposed to the outward, moralistic, legalistic, Judeo-Christian traditions that they had received. And so Bawa is called Guru Bawa. And he is, uh, uh, my understanding from the Qadiri lineage, uh, Abdul Qadir Jilani Sufi lineage, he's a great Sufi teacher. But for him, you know, titles are unimportant. So it's not, you don't have to call him Sheikh or this or that. Guru, okay, if that's the most effective term, that's fine. And that he essentially teaches a kind of, in in a very loving way and draws people from the suburbs and people from the inner city, black and white and affluent and poor and all type of backgrounds. And, you know, for basically 10 years, he he just teaches la ilaha illallah. He just teaches these spiritual principles and he doesn't introduce prayer or fasting or he doesn't even call it Islam. It's just love, oneness, that God is ever present. We can connect with this uh, reality. There's a door inside us which opens into this reality, et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually uh, he starts to slowly teach this, this, um, you know, the more kind of formal aspects of Islam. But even, it seems, 
that to each different person and disciple, he taught a different thing. So some people, and this is, Rory talks about this a lot, right? Some people, it's, they're like, it was Islam that he taught. Some people, they're like, we can't even call it Sufism. It was so universal, you can't even put a name on it, right? So, and that there's still a community around him, and there's this great, you know, mystery and mythology around him today. So that's what I know. So you tell me, what do you think of that story? Yeah, you have the, the broader arc of the narrative. Absolutely. Um, so just I'll fill in some details. Please. Um, uh, so, he, so he was hanging out in the north, essentially, and like you said, performing a lot of miracles. And so a lot of his early followers were essentially coming in to help with kind of issues. And he was actually known um, in the north for um, his performance of exorcisms. That was his In the north of Sri Lanka, you mean? In the north of Sri Lanka, in Jaffna, so in a peninsula called Jaffna. So he had an ashram that he set up there, and so people would come to him every day. And so they would ask, you know, for guidance, for like, oh, this guy over here built a fence and it's into my property. How do I deal with it? It was like very mundane stuff, right? Um, and so, but as people are visiting, sometimes they would linger and he'd give them a little discourse. Like, you know, you'll get to a point where you don't need to come to me to solve this issue. You could solve this issue because God is within you and you are within God, right? And so that's the way he would kind of dispel or like sprinkle some of his teachings. Um, in the 70s, um, there was an individual by the name of Mohammed Maruf who was doing his PhD in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. And he was teaching at Cheney State College. Um, and this was happening, so Malcolm X gets assassinated in 68. You have a race riots happening in Northern Philadelphia. So in Philly particularly, it's very tumultuous in terms of race issues that's happening across America. We see this in LA. Um, and so um, Mohammed Maruf knew Bawa Mohaideen in Sri Lanka. He was a Sri Lankan Muslim student who was in Philadelphia. And he was connected to like the co-ops and other groups, right? Um, and so he was teaching at this, you know, um, institute that's known historically for being, um, uh, uh, for catering to African Americans. And he starts feeling like, you know, someone needs to come in to, to help with the, the racial issues that are taking place. And he said, you know, my teacher, my sheikh, um, Bao Mahideen would be a great figure. But he was also realizing that he doesn't know how to go about the visa stuff. And so he starts approaching around. And so from some of the oral narratives that gathered, he approached like the Moorish Science Temple, he approached members of the Nation of Islam, and eventually he was told to go to an individual who ran a yoga group in Philadelphia, right? And in, in Northern, um, in Philly. And so he goes to Philly, and this is where a lot of the members, there's about 12 people who are part of this yoga group. And so they actually formed these signatures um, and then sent an application for visa form the Bawa Muhaideen Fellowship before Bawa actually shows up to Philadelphia on October 10th, 1971. So once he shows up, then he goes to a Philly, uh, one of the row houses that, you know, that's known in Philly, and he starts lecturing for the first time. And that's, you know, how Bawa comes into it. And the other component of this is also there was an uh, um, individual, um, Carolyn Andrews, who just died um, this year, actually. So she was a secretary, eventually appointed as a secretary. She was also connected by Maruf to Bawa, and they were pals. So Bawa and Carolyn used to write letters to each other. And the reason Carolyn reached out to him is that she had this kind of really intense mystical experience. Um, and she really struggled with it. She said that, you know, um, um, everything dissipated and she was left with this sense of just oneness. And then she went from different gurus and different sheikhs and teachers to ask to explain what this meant. And 
no one really gave her a satisfying answer. And so Maruf said, you know, why don't you write to my teacher, Bawa? And so she did. And so then they, she couldn't go to Sri Lanka to visit him because she didn't have enough money. And so she also is part of the thread that helped mobilize to bring Bawa. So it's fascinating that Bawa really comes to Philadelphia at this kind of moment that, um, you know, race riots are really at the horizon. And so he was presented as this teacher who was there for the poor, the downtrodden, Flyers are put in co-ops and people who are various different um, poor marginalized members of the Philadelphia community were the ones who came to him first. And so members of the Moorish Science Temple used to come to him. So a lot of the African-American members I interviewed in Philadelphia told me these stories, right? Um, and so they were the ones who gravitated towards him because they related to him racially. They related to him in the sense that they saw him also, as they would say, uh, someone who was a person of color. And so they felt that they identified in that way. Right. And so he catered to them. Um, and then- he had very, very dark skin, right? Dark kind of, almost like Dravidian kind of, the, Beautiful dark skin. So, yeah. Exactly. Almost without wrinkles, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. kind of the features are quite shocking, um, but then white, kind of a beard, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I think there is like a physical relatability for other people who are of color, especially African Americans. Then, towards the end of the 70s, is when you get a shift, as you're referring to kind of the people who are part of the more counterculture era. Bawa was doing a lot of book tours. He was on, um, you know, Lex, Hicks, Lex Hickson's um, uh, radio show. Um, he's touring New York, he's touring universities, going to Harvard. And so, these, these tours he's doing is attracting a different contingency of followers. And these are particularly individuals who are part of the counterculturalist um, movement. Um, seeking, you know, seekers looking to the East, um, you know, people who are part of the Hare Krishna movement, people who are part of other Sufi organizations. Um, so these people also then start slowly coming to Philly as well. Um, and this moment creates a little bit of attention because you have members who are part of, you know, they would identify as being part of kind of black power movements who were originally gravitating towards Bawa. Then these other individuals who are not part of those movements coming in. And one individual that I interviewed was like, described like she described the tension that was in the air when Bawa would come down the stairs where people you know you know um, you know sometimes people would sit separately but everybody was there because Bawa was there there was this charisma his teachings but I think over time it, that kind of tension was not um, uh, could not be sustained so a lot of people ended up leaving so unfortunately this is a, a key part of the fellowship that's often not talked about the role that mm. early african americans um, had for the development of the fellowship community mm. right um then over time in the 70s and 80s you get a shift so some people did say there's a lot of african americans who did say but i think one of the factors that prevented them from staying was also kind of a class factor right they ended up moving to a part of philadelphia they bought uh um which is still there overbrook um they bought uh, a row house there which is formerly uh, not a row house a house that was formerly part of a jewish community so it's a predominantly jewish neighborhood um close to saint joseph's um and they kind of set it up there and so they called it Bawa's ashram and it was you know the movement was called the Guru Bawa Fellowship right because up to that point he was seen as a guru as you're saying um, there was a lot of people from all these different traditions who were coming he didn't particularly teach Islam um, in a very explicit way but as you're saying he also the central practice for them was dhikr right and so he taught la ilaha illallah and he's you know described it in Tamil he would say so other than you there's nobody so it's, that was a central tenet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, you know, people will be like, well, what about the second part of the, the, the Shahada? You know, how about, you know, claiming to Muhammad is Rasul? He's like, you know, he would say, you don't even need to get there. You just need to get to the fact that there's nothing, like no essence, nothing beyond God. That's the thing he wanted to teach them. And so he's like, if you could learn that, everything else is kind of secondary. So there was a sense of absolute monotheism, which again, Sufis um, are very much known for, right? Um, and so he said, it doesn't matter if you're saying it in, in Arabic, if you're saying it in Tamil, if you're saying it in whatever language, it doesn't matter, God will hear you. The point is that you understand like the essence of what it is that you're saying, right? Um, so in that sense, there was absolutely a universalism, right? Um, and then we're getting towards the 80s. Um, and one of the things that happens is that, um, so followers of Bawa used to go back and forth. So then he cultivated this transnational relationship. Um, so hence this wordy title that I have in my book, the transnationalism. So for the kind of 14 years, he maintained his Sri Lankan community and then he maintained his American community. Um, in the 80s, the war in Sri Lanka got quite bad. And so he was prevented from going back, right? So there was always a sense that he would be buried there, he would like end up there. But because things were kind of escalating in terms of what was happening in Sri Lanka, there was a sense that he ends up in America, right? Um, and so in, I, in the early 80s, one of his last visits, when he's there in one of his centers in Colombo, there is a, a, one of his followers, Mariam Kabir. She was Jewish and converts to Islam. And she's written a lot of books. She has a book, um, I think, called Thousand Veils. Um, and she does a lot of conferences and talks about Sufism. She has this moment with Bawa where she's kind of like, um, it's time for Salat. Like, I'm going to, do I perform Salat? Like, do I do it? Right. And so she told me that this was a communication that happened internally. And so she starts performing Salat. Um, and so nobody at this time is doing any of this. And so everybody's like, well, like if she's doing it, like, do we do it? So Bawa himself is not performing the prayers, right? Um, but she is. And so Bawa tells us, so if you want to, you could totally do it with her. And so she, the first female, is the one who starts leading the prayers, teaching everybody else to lead the prayers, right? And then so they all start following with her. And then over time, when they come back to America, they continue this practice. And at that point, they're kind of praying on the stage. So if you go to Overbrook, there's kind of a stage. Where you said when they come back to America. So that happened where? In Sri Lanka? So this happened in Sri Lanka. So the first time they start actually performing Salat is in Sri Lanka, led by uh, um, a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they come back to America, and they, everybody's starting to teach each other, and then, then they start performing. And so it's at this point where the idea of the, the need for a space to construct a mosque becomes more explicit. A lot of people during my interviews told me that the, the, uh, the need for that was always there, but there was like financial issues, there was no community to sustain it. But towards kind of the 80s, at this point, they said, well, we have this uh, house in Overbrook, we'll build it as an addition, right? And so that's what they end up doing. The, the mosque that gets built, the Baal Mahdi Masjid, gets built in May of 1984, I think just in time to practice um, uh, Ram- uh, Ramadan that year. So fasting and everything for Eid took place. Um, and so this kind of creates this kind of trajectory in which this space gets built. Um, and so, of course, this creates also a lot of schism because here, Bao, up to this whole point, had not defined what he was doing, right? He said, here, perform vicar, you know, say this. Um, some people felt that his message was to be um, uh, experienced through Islam, but a lot of people, as you also mentioned, were fleeing the religious traditions because they had bad experiences from the, the 70s and 60s, or they were coming from Hare Krishna's or troubled backgrounds where all of a sudden we're saying oh why are we building a masjid right 
And so, of course, in the 70s and 80s, we're talking about America, Islamophobia is rampant. They're like, you know, a lot of women felt uncomfortable. They had these stereotypes um, about, you know, female oppression or stereotypes about what Islam meant, especially as kind of media is going wild throughout the Iranian revolution. So a lot of people did end up leaving and a lot of people end up staying. Um, and those who chose to stay then decided really kind of, they had a spectrum of options. There's many people in the fellowship who still to this day refuse to go into the masjid, but they're the head imam of them of the masjid was Bao's disciple. He was a Baptist. He converts to Islam. He believes that his obligation and service to Bawa is being the imam of the masjid, right? So there is definitely coexistences of diversity within the fellowship. And I think that it is what makes the fellowship as a whole really, really complex. Um, and it's even more complicated when we start thinking about his Sri Lankan contingency, which is Hindus, right? A lot of his followers in Sri Lanka are all Hindus. And so thinking about this diversity is not something maybe specific to America, but actually specific to Sufism and to Bawa is really what prompted me to share the story about Bawa to complicate this idea. Um, and I think in that sense, Bawa was a really good teacher. Like he really was a great teacher who was able to cultivate the needs of his individual students. He healed people. A lot of people talk about him as a father. And you're right, they call him a sheikh, a guru, a kutub, right? They call him the axial pole, the descent of, you know, Abdul Qadir Jalani. Um, and so there is this lineage. But at the end of the day, he'd also say, I'm an Atman, I'm nothing. You know, I'm, I, I am a nobody. Uh, I know nothing. I don't read. I don't write. Um, and so there was a lot of humility to him. And I think one of the things that most people refer to him is as the, the insan al-kamal, the perfected human being. Um, he is this being that had um, annihilated his ego and completely served the divine until the end of his days. Um, and in that capacity, he taught his students to follow his legacy, which is to also become perfected human beings and you know, be servants of the divine. Um, so it really depends, I think, on like which Bawa are you looking for, which Bawa speaks yeah. to you. Because whichever one it is you're looking for, you'll find him in some ways, right? Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I think these great figures... Uh, tend to be like that you know people project onto them i mean the prophet muhammad is a perfect example everyone sees themselves in him even malcolm is a great example right you know that everyone every kind of group that claims malcolm sees him in their own light you know and um so there's a lot that i'd like to circle back on in this narrative but maybe why don't we uh, would you like to kind of finish it like the end of his life and or, or do you, you know, and then we'll kind of circle back on some of those points. Yeah, sorry, that was a lot of information. Um, so he dies in 1986. Um, and so in the 70s, one of the other things the members of the fellowship had done was had purchased um, a farm property out in Coatesville, which is about 40 minutes west of um, um, 40 minutes west of Philadelphia. And so initially it was just 55 acres. And part of the reason of purchasing the property was that uh, somebody in the fellowship had died and Bawa realized that it was so expensive. But I was also funny. He's kind of like a really hilarious, like <laughs> um, uh, flippant person sometimes, which is awesome because you're hearing his discourses. And so he was kind of like, how could it be that expensive to bury someone in the city? This is unacceptable. We're not doing it. This is not, not how we take care of our family. And so then this mobilized the sense to buy property. And this is what they did. They bought Coatesville which is his farm property and so it kind of divided up the space um, a majority of it was to bury members so there's about over I think at this point um, probably over 200 people that are buried there that are part of the fellowship um, and then they also cultivated the farmland so Bawa was a farmer 
farmers. He had a farm in Sri Lanka, um, at least two that I found out about, and one that's still active in Sri Lanka. And so he also then taught his students to also cultivate the land as part of a spiritual discipline. And this is what I mean in terms of the diversity. If you were someone who was attached to the land, you found Sufism through the land. If you were someone who was attached to the, the form in some capacity and you needed that, you found it in the masjid. If you were founded in the service of him, he kind of had these different options of where you could come in and how you could come in, right? He catered that. Um, and so that was taking place. And so when he died in 1986, initially there was no plan to bury him because they didn't expect him to be in, like, you know, there was a sense that his Sri Lankan disciples thought that he would die in Sri Lanka and they would bury him there and they have a space there for him. Um, and so this created a lot of kind of issues and they said, well, why don't we just bury him where um, the others are buried? So they found kind of the highest uh, area and then they buried him about 10 feet below. And then after he was buried, it was just kind of very simple. They had a fence around it. Um, and if you see kind of some of the early pictures, it's quite simple, like it's profound. Um, and then there was a lot of conversation about what to do to memorialize. And I think some members realized that in historically, um, you know, a lot of teachers' uh, bodies were entombed in mazars or mausoleums or these sacred spaces to honor. Um, and this is kind of interesting because we're talking about a community that is really kind of coming from like a Protestant Puritan background where spaces and religious paraphernalia is kind of, you know, intense, right? Like if there's kind of this tension where I could still sense it and I'll say a little bit more about that. So they were really trying to figure out a way to negotiate how to do a space that honors Baba, but also like kind of their American disposition towards kind of simplicity and kind of a Puritan background, if that makes sense. Um, and so there was a, an American artist who's also part of uh, the fellowship, Michael Green. He's collaborated a lot with um, Coleman Barks on the Illuminated Rooming series. So Michael Green essentially was kind of part of a lot of these conversations and everybody had these different ideas. And Michael one day eventually was like, here's a plan that I have. And it was really based on kind of the inspiration of the Taj Mahal because of our South Asian um, cultural lineage. And so that's what they did. Within three days, every member of the community volunteered their time to just build up the infrastructure. And I should contrast this, that when the masjid was built, being built, a lot of people didn't come. There was you know, several people who volunteered their time. But when they were building this mazar, or this mausoleum for Bawa, everybody showed up. So there is fascinating how there are some spaces had different issues. Um, and some of them, you know, all of them climbed up to the top and wrote their names on the, on the roof to say that this is a very personal memorial for their teacher, their father, a figure that they had an intimate relationship with. And so it got painted and it was very simple. There was nothing there at the time. And then kind of in the 90s and early 2000s, I think word of mouth or one figure particularly um, kind of heard about this place and had driven out to Coatesville. And then it's kind of spread like wildfire that there is this Mazar out in Coatesville because it's not really indigenous to the American landscape, right? And religious landscape. Um, and so uh, by this time, immigration um, had increased the Muslim diaspora population, particularly in the Eastern seaboard, places like New Jersey, Philadelphia. And so once one kind of group of people started coming in, the others had told everybody else through word of mouth. And next thing you know, you have hundreds and hundreds of people who come to make pilgrimage to Bawa's Mazar. And so this is what I think about being the third wave right? So you have the early beginnings of the fellowship was attracting a predominantly African-American population, the middle wave really attracting predominantly those uh, individuals coming from the cultural, cultural era, and the present wave, which is really a hybrid of all of that, sprinkled on top with kind of Muslim diasporic individuals who are coming to the Mazar for Bawa to access the space, 
and may not necessarily be going to Philadelphia. So right now, the fellowship, um, I would say globally, maybe has over 2,000 people. I don't know. Um, I always ask for statistics, and it's always hard to come by. Um, it's thriving in Philadelphia because a lot of people go to the mosque because they need to pray for Friday Juma prayers. They go. Um, there are centers in Sri Lanka. There are centers globally. There are centers in Toronto. Um, but the thing that has gained it the most attraction is the fact that a lot of people are just going to Bao's Mazar to visit that space because they feel called and they feel that there's something special about it. And for a lot of Muslims who are in the diaspora, that space represents something of their homeland to them, right? It's special in the sense that they might have experienced a space whether it be in Pakistan, in India, in Indonesia. And so there's a rel relative um, relatability to it. And, and so when they're feeling perhaps displaced or out of place in an American landscape that may not be welcoming them, they go to a space like that and they find something that is powerful, that gives them peace. And so a lot of people I talk to who are pilgrims there related that. They felt, you know, they would say once they went inside, they felt like they were at home. It was hard for them to believe that they were in America, that a Mazar like this could exist in America. Um, and so that is kind of where the fellowship's at right now, I would say. MashaAllah. You definitely filled in a lot of gaps, MashaAllah. Um, and there's so much here that I would love to touch on. Um, I guess just go, going chronologically, <clears throat> the first part that you said is really fascinating to me because he comes in 71 and the actual intention for bringing him uh, is related to to race and related to the, just the intense moment of American racism and the race riots three years after Malcolm is martyred. Uh, the black power movement is kind of on its heels, black Panthers developing all these things. And so you have this Sri Lankan Muslim student who believes that, you know, his, great master, his teacher from Sri Lanka can help, help sell, you know, solve that essentially. So really the, that's so fascinating is that the intention is related to that, um, which I wasn't aware of. And then he goes to these uh, Islam, black Muslim movements, right? You mentioned the Moorish Science Temple, the Nation of Islam, and he speaks to them about that. Um, but they actually, I would say a lot of this, those individuals affiliated with those movements came to him. So he didn't necessarily go to them, but um, a lot of the early members who did come to see Bao in Philadelphia were from those movements. Okay, so yeah, that's what I'd like to learn more about. So this individual who brought him, uh, and then I, I'd like to hear about that early period, um, those first few years, and who was drawn to it? Was it predominantly uh black muslims or just black people more generally or i'd love to hear about that yeah i think um i think it was a bit of both i think he based on where they were advertising in philadelphia um they would set up at like community centers um and um co-op shops and things like that and i think based on kind of the areas in which they were um advertising a lot of the individuals who did come were coming from this area so one individual that i interviewed um she's african-american she was one of the earliest individuals in the, in the fellowship um, and she was saying that the first time she and her friend had gone they had come into the fellowship in the row house that was muhammad maru's house and they noticed that there were people wearing african-american 
African-Americans wearing fez caps. Mm. And she realized that a lot of those individuals were members of the Moorish Science Temple because that was a trend to wear fez caps and be a part of that movement, mm. right? And so they would come and listen. So I think there was at that time a sense that um, race was important, right? I mean, and that we're talking the 70s, race was immensely important. Here is an individual who was being racialized in the way that he was being viewed. Um, now, in all of the discourses I've listened to, I don't know what Bawa's own um, articulations or ideas, he, he says that race, caste, creeds, these are all illusions. These are not real. These are you know, results of Maya. These are illusory. And the minute that we transcend them is the minute that we can go on with our journey to unity, to Talheed, to oneness with the divine. So fundamentally, from his point of view, of course, these are limitations, but I don't know how then he dealt with the fact that this is, um, uh, these were something that was central to the people who were coming to see him. Um, but I will say, um, Bawa in Sri Lanka, so the Sri Lankan war is about uh, this ethnic issue between these communities, right? Um, and so during the early periods in the, in the 50s and 60s, when the civil war is brewing in Sri Lanka, the same kind of thing had happened, but it wasn't race-based. It was more ethno-linguistic based. And so when a lot of young uh, people came to him and said, you know, we're going to join militant movements and we're going to fight, he would say, no, like violence is not the answer to this, right? So I think he was coming from a period in Sri Lanka where he had dealt with similar issues that were leading to violent, tumultuous moments of human beings just killing each other. And so I think that was the reason where Maru feeling that Bawa knows this context, Bawa knows what's happening in Sri Lanka where ethnicity is dividing people and people are killing each other over it, where he's able to transfer some of that knowledge or get, get, to get people to transcend that, right? Um, I think in terms of what happened to the fellowship, right? The people that I talked to who were part of this early movement, um, I think, you know, Bawa taught to transcend these things, but in the everyday lives was also part of their reality, right? And I think that meant that over time, when the, the demographics of the group was changing, it was also difficult to sustain, as I had alluded to earlier, right? Um, but part of the reason that I feel that it's so important to tell the story is that, because we don't realize this, it's, it's so central to the institutional history of this movement, right? That African-Americans were important in the early years. They continue to be important. They were institutional leaders, right? Um, one of the first presidents of the movement was African-American. He was central to getting signatures to get VAWA visa. So there were many people who believed in the kind of the universalism and the equality that VAWA was preaching. And so this utopia that, you know, they, they aspired to, which was not being experienced in their society at that time, right, which is very painful. Um, so I think that's been central to the organization and has always been central. Um, and so for a lot of people, once they got to Bawa and if they were racialized, they said it never mattered with Bawa, right? It didn't matter where you were coming from. It didn't matter if you were women. It didn't matter what your sexual orientations were. It mattered that you came and he saw you as a child and he took care of you and he catered to the needs of what it is that you needed, right? But I think one of the things is that he was never an advocate for violence. He was never uh, anyone who was kind of maybe feeding into that rhetoric, right? Um, he was in some ways a social activist, right? He really believed in peacekeeping. And so in the in the 70s, during the height of the Iranian revolution, we see Bauer writing letters to people. He writes letters to the president, Jimmy Carter. He writes president's uh, letters to um, the Egyptian president, uh, to the president. Um, and I think he wrote to Margaret Thatcher as well, these letters of saying, 
saying that you're all in Ayatollah Khomeini saying that you're all misrepresenting Islam. You don't know what you're doing. So the extent to which that he advocated a world in which everybody should be living at peace, it was very central to him, but he didn't do it in a way that he advocated it through violence. It was centrally through peace and prayer and centering oneself, right? And he enabled that. And so you see this in a lot of fellowship students who've taken on this mantle, they're activists. Right? They're part of the UN organizations. They're doing this all this wonderful work because they see that as part of what Bawaj taught them. So it's not even that he taught them to be Muslim. He just taught them to how to go change the world, to bring about peace, right? Um, so I don't know if that answers the question. The other component that's tricky is that a lot of people in the fellowship who were part of the early era did end up leaving. So when I went to do interviews, you know, people who were from African-American backgrounds were quite a few. And so I was able to get their stories. But the demographic isn't necessarily that. And you do, like, you know, after Juma prayers on Fridays when you're going there to eat, for instance, you do see, and you see these as most mosques, right? Mosques tend to, you want it to be ideally homogenous, not homogenous, culturally heterogeneous, but people have their cliques, right? So if you're going into the, uh, the dining hall and you're sitting to eat, you will find people that are sitting perhaps within their homogenous cultural groups, right? Mm -hmm. um, so... That's not what Bawa would have wanted, but I think it's the reality of what happens when you have a, a mosque community that is so immensely culturally and racially diverse, right? Um, and people coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different cultural experiences in a place like Philadelphia. So I think it's really a product of um, the, the demographic of Philly, um, but the, the willingness to sustain kind of some harmony in that is really what Bawa would have wanted fundamentally, right? Um, I don't know if that articulates. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... It does. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the reason that this really interests me, um, too, is because on a personal level, I think of the two and I, you kind of get to this, right? There's there's essentially three streams uh, into Islam in the, the 20th century. And leaving aside the kind of stream of immigration, um, you have a kind of and again, we're simplifying, but you have the kind of black stream and the white stream. And there's overlaps, but there's differences, right? So obviously, one of the most interesting facts of 20th century America is that th this huge movement of African American Muslims, you know, and you, the Nation of Islam obviously being the biggest one, but you have more Science Temple, you have others, you have the kind of 5% nation branching off from the Nation of Islam. And then you have these humongous cultural figures. We mentioned Malcolm, obviously Muhammad Ali, uh, Elijah, Elijah Muhammad, Farrakhan, uh, etc. And not to mention, I mean, if we want to get into arts, we could talk about so many jazz musicians and then moving into hip hop, which kind of revives that legacy and passes it as hip hop becomes mainstream in the late 80s, early 90s. It kind of popularizes that discourse. People like, um, you know, public enemy like really revives this interest in uh malcolm and then through you know on the coattails of that spike lee's documentary which is inspired by all of that because he's of that generation also etc and then that really colors and influences um america and and particularly islam in america on the other hand you have white americans who in, in the 20th century, particularly in the second half of the 20th century, um, in, the, in the transformative cultural movements of the 60s and 70s, turning away from 
the religion, the politics, the kind of hierarchical structures and even social norms and family structures of their parents' generations, anti-war, anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism, anti-Eurocentrism, anti-Christianity um, often, right? And turning East for spirituality, you know, et cetera. And one of these great streams uh, of, of turning East for spirituality is Islam, right? That's the Near East. And especially, right, you can trace it geographically because all of these, the kind of hippie trail, right? They get on a kind of freight boat from the East Coast and go across the Atlantic through the Mediterranean up into Istanbul. And then you take the Oriental Express, the, the, the train that goes across Turkey, across Afghanistan, across Iran, Pakistan, to India in search of enlightenment for the guru. Well, of course, these are all Muslim countries and they're traditional Muslim countries often in those times, you know, they're not the places we associate today where there's war and extremism there. They were often very traditional. So you find many people in the Muslim community today that converted, um, they actually physically took that route searching enlightenment in India and found a Sufi sheikh or a Sufi master and became Muslim that way. So, you know, I'm curious about this because me, you know, being born in the 80s and growing up in the 90s, early 2000s, coming of age in urban America, being involved in hip hop, being in a very multicultural environment, parents' generation going through those countercultural things, you know, I was influenced by both of those streams. And those those are the reason that that's my Islam is very much formed by that. And my just general conception of the world is very much formed by those. So because of that, when you talk about Bawa as kind of also threading this needle and kind of being this meeting place of all those things, it really fascinates me. Um, so you mentioned, I think you mentioned night. So he comes in 71 and then in 75, I think you mentioned that he starts to, gain followers outside of the African-American community on a wider scale. So, and you mentioned Lex Hickson, which it'd be great to go into that piece and Muzaffar Effendi as well. But I'd love to hear why did this change um, and what happened? You mentioned that it was a kind of difficult trans, you know, change and some people, uh, you know, African-Americans particularly feeling uh, like they, sh they left many of them and et cetera. And the, race and class coming together. So maybe we could explore that a little bit. Yeah, um, there's a lot. <laughs> um, um, and so yeah, for the sake of simplification, I think one of the things um, that I've noticed when I was studying Sufism in America and really picking up on like the legacy with like what Rory has done and a lot of other great scholars have done is that we haven't really been race conscious in how we approach it, right? And so um, when I noticed this component of the fellowship and really these various tiers of experiences of the members who are part of the fellowship, I felt that it was important. And like you're saying, it really reflects, I think the fellowship really reflects the broader trajectory of Islam in America right? Um, so not just Sufism, but also Islam. So, you know, um, Sylvia Andayev, who's an, a great historian, talks about um, the early um, indentured slaves in America, how a lot of them practice Sufism. They had talismans and the rituals. These were things that were done in secret, right? Um, and then you also have the context, as you're mentioning, the emergence of race-conscious Islam as something in America that was really emerging out of this narrative with, you know, Elijah Muhammad and Fard Muhammad as 
you know, Islam being the original religion of the black man and it became a tool of empowerment and a tool to respond to the oppression, right? And this is where legacy of Malcolm is so important. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to think about, well, what, how was Sufism a part of that process, right? You know, Sufism was so central to a lot of West African slaves who were in this country before America was America, right? And we're seeing this also in a lot of studies that are coming out of um, South America, like, you know, Brazil. Um, and so it is fascinating that there is this kind of layering and complexity to the reality of what Islam is in America rather than the simple trajectory of convert Islam, right? And this trajectory that includes this vibrant like hip hop culture, right? And like, um, and when you look at a lot of the ideas of the five percenters, right? The idea of around mysticism, around uh, mystical numerology, and especially in um, the way in which they, um, the lyrics are built up around that, right? Um, a lot of these ideas, some scholars would suggest is also influenced from this idea of Sufism, right? Um, and so it's, it's hard to kind of also like start to weave out and say where one uh, begins and another ends. And I think that's really important to, to get away from a conversation like this, is that race was an important component. Race has always been an important component in the ways in which we think about Islam in the American context and the North American context. And I think with Sufism, there's a sense that in the North American context, maybe even from critics, that because of its Orientalist and colonial legacy that a lot of it is this kind of co-opted thing of, you know, Sufis, um, Sufism as being um, taken by individuals in positions of power, which historically have been the case, and presented in a particular way and commodified. And we see certain legacies of that with Rumi and as such, right? But that was not also only story, right? There's kind of this broader dialogical feature that's very, very important to, to understand. And I think with the fellowship, we get that, right? We get the fact that people willingly who are coming from marginalized identities, racialized identities, tapped in and saw something of value with Bawa, right? Um, a lot of these stories are lost, and I hope that more scholars who study this and young scholars who are coming in the field will pick up and find more of these threads, right? Of what is this component? Um, and especially in New York and Brooklyn, we see a lot of component of Senegalese um, Sufis who are, you know, part of the vibrant New York landscape, which is beautiful. Like those are the stories that need to be told. And, and really, you know, I think it's so important, as you're saying, is just to diversify the way in which we think about um, Islam in America. And, you know, that includes Sufism for me, because that's where my interest lies and that's where my commitments are. Um, but how does this impact, you know, the broader landscape, be it pop culture, be it, you know, um, music, poetry, jazz, all of this, right? Sports. Um, um, so yeah, uh, I don't know. Sorry, what was the question? That so you were... I think it was 75. I want to start kind of like diving in a little more to oh. that moment where the kind of uh, basically white people, people of European ancestry start coming and how that exchange happened and, and kind of how that unfolded. Yeah, and, and a lot of them are coming from different experiences, right? They were coming from, let's say, the Hare Krishna movement is one that I heard a lot of. A lot of them were coming from yoga-based groups or Buddhist groups, right? And so they were already tapped into this field. So I think their experience with spirituality had different intentions, right? Versus maybe somebody who was coming from a racialized background. This is not to say that not racialized people were not also spiritually experimenting. Like this is obviously so diverse and not trying to create any like categories or boundaries. And so as these individuals were coming, um, it just meant that, um, you know, the class aspects of the community changed. And I think that had a factor to it. I think the idea that the neighborhood, right, initially was in uh, Row House and they ended up in Overbrook, which is more of an affluent area, that also likely had an impact of it as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing these shifts. I, it's not to say that Bawa's 
teachings changed. Like he, his teachings were not any different from the way that he taught when he first came to 1971 to what was happening in let's say 76, 77 and so forth, right? I think the people that were coming to the community and those who were staying there, they were the ones who were shifting. And it's more broadly a reflection of what was happening in terms of the spiritual landscape. If he's going on these spirit, you know, these talking tours and he's showing up on like Hickson or other, you know, programs from LA to Toronto to, to New York, he's attracting a different group of people, right? So a lot of the people that I ended up interviewing who are presently really deeply involved with the fellowship are coming from that era. They came from that era where they were spiritual seekers themselves. They came to Bawa. Bawa, they would say, settle them, right? They had a lot of this like seeker angst i don't know if that's the right word um but he kind of contained it he you know told them okay you can't be living in communes you need to you know cut your hair you need to go get married you need to get a job right take it easy with the lucy in the sky with diamonds yeah exactly yeah the drugs the psychedelics the stuff does not work sure it gets you high for a second but it's not sustainable and so he had a very explicit thing like if you want to find god then there's certain ways you have to do it and this is the way that i could teach you right it's not like if you don't want if this method doesn't work for you then you should leave it wasn't any sense you have to stay here right and so this meant a lot of people were coming from jewish and christian backgrounds right and so then that became kind of the basis in which he started talking to his disciples and when you look at the video files in the archives you'll see when there's like moments where the um the camera pans to the audience you see that in the reflection of who's sitting there listening to, to his discourses um and so again the message didn't change i think his demographics changed and he as a result of that was just catering to that and those remain kind of the people who have been significantly important to the continuity of the fellowship to this day in terms of institutional executive leaders right yeah, yeah i was gonna ask because I mean, one, it makes sense because black people in America always define what's cool and then everyone else kind of like figures it out later. So it's just like, whether it's rock and roll or jazz or hip hop or any other thing. So it would make sense that uh, Bawa would be that way as well. And then, but, um, but on a more like uh, serious note, I'm, I was curious if, his discourse was more overtly Islamic or, you know, using the words like Islam to African-Americans because of the presence of that identity as a positive force. Um, whereas in white, you know, white society, it wasn't, it maybe had negative connotations or at least not the same connotations as this is, you know, the groundwork had been done where this is our authentic religion. This is our identity. We are from, you know, Mecca. We, this Arabic is our true, you know, um, language. You, you hear these, this, this type of discourse in, in these movements like the nation. So I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, so from, um, if, I haven't rigorously tracked the discourses, let's say from 71 to 86 when he died. Um, the discourses I have studied generally, there was, no, there was a sense that he would utilize Arabic um, language regularly, but I don't think it heightened over time. Um, and his relationship or what constituted Islam was also like, you know, he's very cheeky about it. One time there was a reporter who came um, and I think he was with the Philadelphia Inquiry or something like that. And um, they were recording this and Bawa, and they were like, oh, like, you know, um, what does MR stand for in front of your name? And he'd, he'd be like, oh, MR stands for Muhammad Rahim. And his students would be like, but that's 
a Muslim name. He's like, yeah. Like it was like to a point where they were like, yeah, like that's what it is. So I don't even know if the people were often like attuned to what was happening in the sense that they hadn't really thought about what the MR stood for. And then the reporter goes on to ask like, um, so like what are like what are you all doing here? Like, you know, what are you like, are you trying to be Muslims? Are you Muslims? And he kind of just like guffaws and then he says, Oh, like you won't find any Muslims, you'll just see a bunch of people trying to be Muslims, but there's no Muslims here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think even the ways in which he defined what constituted Islam or what constituted Muslims to his disciples and to others was just like not with the traditional sense anyway. Um, so this I would be interesting, it would be interesting to see how it was received by somebody who was coming from uh, a Muslim inherited identity already, whether it be racialized or not. And I think that was part of the sense that people appreciated, right? If they were coming from an inherited identity that was already Muslim, then here is somebody who challenged that, that was beyond that. Um, and for those who weren't, um, this was a sense that here was somebody who was asking them to think of just being a really good human being, fundamentally, right, to be a good person. Um, and this is where the mosque was really confusing to a lot of people. Like, how do you go about for the last 10 years teaching in this way of transcending space identity and all of a sudden building the space and saying that here's this thing. Um, and it is, it is a rather curious thing. It's one of the things that was kind of central to my research questions when I was talking to his followers. And they said that it was something that they struggled with, but at the end of the day, this is, this is what he did, you know? Um, so was it a means to provide structure and stability for the movement? That's definitely an argument to be made from an you know, academic sociological perspective. Um, was it a means to um, provide economy for the movement? That's also an argument to be made, right? Um, was it an, um, a way to say that here is a space that some people can use if they wanted to? Yeah. One of the discourses on the day that he opened, he said, you know, okay, well, if you want to go to the church, go to the church. If you want to go to the, the, um, the synagogue, go to the synagogue. If you want to go to the mosque, go to the mosque. Fine. If you don't want to go to any of those things, if you want to come and sit and do thicker with me, then we do that. He's like, I'm not here to force anybody to do anything. If you go willingly, you go willingly. They said, you know, people come and ask you if you're a Christian, you say yes. If they ask you if you're a Jew, you say yes. And if they ask you if you're a Muslim, you say yes. And then they'll think you're crazy and they'll just leave you alone. <laughs> right? So there is, he was really kind of subversive in the sense that, sure, just get over it. Like, get over the fact that this is a mosque. Like, get over whatever it is that you think is the issue here. But it was, it was, it, you know, at the end of the day, we have our limitations as human beings. You know, we're kind of caught up in this thing as well, right? So, yes, he was dealing with all these racial issues. Yes, he was dealing with all this other stuff that's happening in the broader sociopolitical context. But he was also like, can we just transcend all of that? And can we just focus on God, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned three waves. So the first one, uh, 71 through 75, right? And then 75 through, I'm not sure when, you mentioned 84, the masjid was built. But um, I'm curious about this second wave then as we move into that. And you mentioned Lex Hickson. And I think he's interesting uh, uh, for a number of reasons. But one, because he helps as a kind of symbol of the kind of what was happening in that counterculture seeker movement. Right. And so maybe you could speak a little bit about him and his trajectory. I know this isn't the subject of your work, but um, I think it might help illuminate some things. Yeah, I mean, Hickson had this radio show, and of course, um, uh, he was doing his PhD in religious studies, so I think he, in many ways, was a seeker. He had experimented with all these different religious traditions as well, um, and I think um, there's an awesome, uh, um, there's an, a video clip still of Hickson's interview with Baba Muhaideen. You can find it online, so it's, it's a great um, 
a grade where Lixon, um, Hickson is asking Bauer these questions. Um, and I think that relationship was really significant because, I mean, Hickson um, would go on, obviously, to get, get Baya with um, Muzaffar Effendi Ozak, um, and that becomes a significant relationship for the formation of that lineage in America, especially as um, um, Fruhia Frederick is now, you know, inherited that mantle and so runs the, the masjid in, in Manhattan. And so that lineage is important. But one of the things I noticed is that there was great reverence for both Muzaffar and Bawa Muhaideen. So there's this um, fantastic video. It's only in the archives in Philly, but I remember sitting and watching it in Bawa's room um, uh, and I was like completely blown away. And it's essentially because of these cross, you know, relationships and partly because of Hickson as well, Muzaffar had come to Philadelphia to visit Bawa Muhaideen. And so Muzaffar is sitting on one couch and Bawa is sitting on another couch and all of their disciples are like all Wow, standing. they met. I didn't know they met. Yeah, they met. It's, it's wow. one of the most stunning videos I've ever seen. And of course, neither of them speak English, right? <laughs> so there's this huge translation process that happens. And so Muzaffar says something and it gets translated into Turkish that somehow maybe have gotten also translated into Arabic or then gets translated into English. And from English, it gets translated into Tamil, and in Tamil, it gets translated to Bawa. Bawa says something in Tamil, and it gets translated. Like, it, it just says, like, five people translating. So... And towards the end, it's almost like a joke, because both Muzaffar and Bawa look at each other like these fools. Like, it's like you think they're translating, but they're already communicating without the translators, right? It's like, it's a really phenomenal video. Um, so yeah, those moments that happened where Muzaffar um, and Bawa had this beautiful relationship. And to this day, like if you go to a lot of lineages or um, places that are connected, and in New York City, there's often, when I go for events or thicker, they often ask, you know, who am I? Who's my teacher? And if I mention Bawa, there's this kind of great reverence, right? Um, in Toronto with the Drahi communities, you know, it's the same thing where any student of Muzaffar, when Bawa is mentioned, you know, they include Bawa in the litanies for Dikr that night. And so there was these real relationships that manifested with a lot of Sufi teachers. Um, which are often not known. Um, and so these stories that are often not known, right? So I think Hickson was definitely part of that. And also because New York City and Philly were fairly close, right? So it's not too difficult to kind of venture into those spaces. We're not talking about like LA or something because travel would have been still tricky. Um, but there is something fascinating that happened with Muzaffar and Bawa and kind of the uh, Drahi tradition and the lineage, which I still see maintained today in the communities. Um, there's just great reverence for each other's lineage. Um, and I think great reverence for Bawa and Zafar towards each other. Um, so that is something that I want to definitely write about down the road, but that video is, it's great. So if you're ever in Philly, you should try to see if you could access it. Oh yeah, it. I really want to see that. And you know, I mean, there's, there's an interesting anecdote that I heard that some of Bawa's students, it may have even been Lex, I'm not sure, but told Muzaffar Effendi after he had been coming to America a number of times and, you know, teaching, they said, Bawa only taught La ilaha illallah for 10 years. He didn't teach any, he didn't teach, <laughs> and, you know, the, the narration is that Muzaffar Effendi responded, oh, we should have done that. Like he noticed there was wisdom in that. We've been trying to, you know, rush it too fast with the other things, pray fast, but he had the hikmah, the wisdom to understand, focus on that. So, and I think that's also an interesting parallel because 
as you alluded to, Lex Hickson has this very popular radio show called, is it Into the Spirit or something like that? Yeah, yeah. And um, it's very popular. And what he's doing is he's basically interviewing all the spiritual teachers that are coming to America. So Zen teachers from Japan and gurus from India and any number of Westerners that have kind of, you know, taken various paths. And so it kind of speaks to that moment, the, the, the kind of budding uh, movement of, you know, kind of taking the wisdom, what would eventually move into the kind of new age, what people, right? But this idea that there's these universal truths and wisdom traditions, and there's especially that the kind of contemplative, esoteric, mystical paths within them, and that they're kind of unanimous. They, they, they're saying this. So this is the kind of moment. And Lex Hickson becomes a kind of, uh, you know, powerful uh, or, or important figure within that. And then he, while kind of taking lineages with other paths, he becomes a disciple of Muzaffar Effendi. And there's a, there's a story about when he had Muzaffar Effendi first on the radio show, and he would basically, to start it off, they had one of Muzaffar's um, disciples, who was a beautiful uh, singer, had a beautiful voice, do the call to prayer to start off the show. And uh, Lex Hickson mentions that Muzaffar Effendi wept. He wept while the prayer was being called. And the reason later, the, the reason why is because when Muzaffar Effendi was a young man studying, his sheikh, one of the old kind of last Ottoman sheikhs, told him that this will happen. Like he told him that he would eventually go to America and he would, you know, call people to the path. So he was seeing that his, his and Lex Hickson mentioned, he said, this, this, um, this radio show is broadcast all over. In fact, it's even broadcast from the Empire State Building. So for a brief moment, we're going to turn the Empire State Building into the ta tallest, uh, you know, uh, you know, minaret in the world. And so Mozaffar Fendi was so moved to tears. And that this is actually what moved Lex Hickson to devote himself to Mozaffar Fendi because he, he, he was really moved by this moment. And so that story really moved me as well. And, you know, he becomes a disciple and then he uh, eventually becomes a sheikh in the order. And I think what's interesting in these parallels in, uh, Rory Dixon also commented upon this in a previous episode is these negotiations of Islam and Sufism in the West and different demographics because Muzaffar Effendi was a sheikh of the Jarahi order. He essentially creates two branches for the American disciples. One that is people that are, you know, often they're already Turkish or of Muslim heritage and they want a Sufism that is very much traditional and based on what you might find in Turkey. So he basically set up a, a, a group and a center and a teke that is just like the mother center in uh, Istanbul. But then he also realized that a vast majority of people, because when they did their zikrs, people would come from all different traditions and were seeking spiritual depth and meaning and transformation, he realized that there's a vast majority of people that they're not just going to become Muslim and take on the whole thing, but that they would, they they really do want 
the medicine and the beauty and the truth and the practice of this, uh, the spiritual path and of the Sufi path in particular. And so he created a whole nother branch that he put Lex Hickson in charge of that was more or less for those kind of ecumenical seekers. And I think that's really interesting in parallel also to Bawa because you have people that see Bawa as this very universal guru. And then you see him as a great Muslim Sufi teacher within his own community. So I don't know, maybe you have some reflections on that, but that's something that strikes me as very amazing. And, and I think, you know, Rory's talked a lot about this and I talk a little bit about this in this book as well is in terms of the spectrum of Sufism that you see in the American context and the North American context. I remember I was at um, Sheikh Afriya who inherited um, Lux Hickson's mantle in terms of um, Effendi's lineage or one of the lineages for um, the on a Thursday night in New York City. And then we have to also realize, I mean, it's in Manhattan, in Soho, like you're attracting a particular crowd, right? Um, and so being there, just you looked around and you just noticed just, I think a younger group of people who were seekers, right? People coming from very numerous eclectic backgrounds, but also individuals who were Muslims as well, right? Um, and I remember um, towards the end, one of the students had asked her a question and said, you know, why you had mentioned honoring the great ones like Buddha um, and all these other figures. Um, and she, and he was like, well, why didn't you mention, I think Krishna or something like that. And she was like, oh, well, my apologies. I, it wasn't within my, like in me at that moment as I was um, honoring the great figures. So here in this context, you have someone like Sheikh Afriya, who, because she's a woman, also is already dealing with a hurdle of other issues, right, in terms of her authority, um, is leading mixed gender congregation, um, is telling people they are uh, able to participate in whatever capacity they want to, veiling in whatever capacity they want to, um, and being in the space in whatever capacity they want to, but also maintaining, as you're saying, this very universal, um, inclusive model, right? And she would say that that's what she's inherited from Hickson, and that's what she inherited from Effendi, and that's what Sufism is for her, right? Like, and so that's the lineage that she teaches. Um, and these are not the only ones, right? Um, Kabir and Camille Holinsky of the Threshold Society, um, and you have many figures, um, Sufi communities are across, um, Ziani at Khan as well, right? So you have a lot of Sufi teachers across the North American landscape who are now global Sufi teachers. Their authority is not really limited just to America anymore. So even talking about it as American Sufism is interesting, where they're navigating what you know Sufism means and how to adapt with it. Um, what's interesting about the fellowship is that Bala, I mean, physically is not present. Most people will say that, you know, in the community, they don't say that he's dead. He's just physically not present. And so here you have a similar community who's going through similar issues, but without a Sufi teacher and successor that's appointed, the way in which that universalism and also Islamic formality is negotiated is a little bit more challenging. Whereas you have someone like Faria or Lex um, or Ziani Khan, these are active Sufi teachers who are living, who are directing the way in which that can manifest in their institutions. So what do you do in a fellowship organization where your teacher is not present anymore? How does that negotiation unfold? So I think that's why the fellowship is rather curious in that way. It's because um, everybody has a way in which they could um, understand who Bawa is and understand what his Sufism or Islam is because they could say, well, you know, in this discourse, this is what Bawa said, and this is how it influences my perception of Islam. And in this discourse, you know, this is what Bawa said, and this is how it influences my Sufism, right? But since there's no living teacher, everybody's contained in this kind of umbrella that Bawa created, and they're kind of negotiating with each other in terms of who was the real Bawa, 
what was his real Sufism, right? And I think in many ways, this is really reflective of what's happened in Islam and what's happened in all religious traditions, right? A charismatic prophetic figure comes and leaves. They leave their words, their legacies, their text. And you have a broad community who's negotiating within each other in terms of how to go about maintaining that legacy, especially when that figure is no longer present anymore. So we're not talking about 2000 millennia ago with, you know, um, with Jesus or with Muhammad, we're talking about Bawa three decades ago and the community is still experiencing the same level of diversity, right? It just really tells you a lot in terms of um, humans, I think, right? And our need to kind of hold on to what we think is normative or what we think is real. And I think more, I think, I think at the end of the day for me, and I look at it, it really just this speaks volumes about our psycho psychology. Um, and our needs and our egos, right? Um, but everybody's just trying, everybody's just trying really hard to preserve the tradition of Bawa and preserve their love for him, right? Um, but I think there are some unique challenges to the fellowship that other communities don't have because they have a successor and this community doesn't. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And just that, you know, to add to that is like, essentially how, you know, one person saying one thing could be understood by, a hundred people in a hundred different ways that we're all so unique and, and it, really parsing that out is really interesting. One person that you mentioned, um, because some people, you know, may say, well, okay, this is an interesting phenomenon, but it's kind of a smaller community. It doesn't really have, you know, a few thousand people, but it's, it's an interesting study, but it's kind of a relic. It doesn't really affect the broader culture that much, but at least in one way that I'm aware of, that's, very much not true and that is that Rumi becomes the number one selling poet in America and this kind of profound cultural force uh, and the great teacher and you know now just the you know positive views of Sufism as this tradition of wine and, and ecstasy and you know, talking about Hollywood movies made about him and memes and UNESCO, you know, the year of Rumi and all this stuff. And this can all be really traced back, as far as I'm concerned, to Bawa through one of his students, and that is Coleman Barks. Coleman Barks would never, I mean, his, you know, it's, it's, it's unfathomable that he would have done what he did with his poetry if it wasn't for the fact that he was a disciple of uh, Bawa. So I'm interested. Um, I don't know that much about their time together or his relationship. I have heard him mention it in passing, but I don't know if you've spoken to him or others or if you've uh, have anything about that. Yeah, um, I spoke to Coleman Barks a few times and met him when he was in Toronto a few times at some events. Um, and um, and so so Coleman told me that he had um, a dream like. Uh, he had a dream and in this dream there was a ball. I don't want to divulge too much because it could have just also been a private conversation between me and Coleman, but I think I've heard dream... him tell it publicly. So I don't think it's, yeah. I don't. Okay. Um, so yeah, there was a dream and in the dream, there was this like vessel, this ball sphere and within it, I think there was a being. Um, and so I think anyway, the details of this dream, whatever had happened had left him a little bit, you know, confused and like what's happening. Um, and I think like many, as often as people, this happened, I heard this um, like process through a lot of people where so-and-so had met a teacher and they felt, oh, my friend would also 
be perfect. So let me bring my friend along, right? And so I think this is, is somehow it conspired. And so the first time in which Coleman Barks is going in to meet um, Bawa, um, he sees him and he realizes that he was a man that was within this sphere, this vessel. And it was like obviously transformative for him. And this resulted in a very important relationship. And so Coleman Barks was very much dedicated to Bawa. And a lot of people don't know this. And I think it's um, it's important to know because it, it very much influences um, the work that Coleman has done in terms of the renditions of poetry. Um, and from my understanding, Coleman got had received permission from Bawa to do that work. So I think it was like a blessing that he had thought out. Um, Robert Bly was the one who's the other American translator who's done a lot of work with Hafez and other poets, um, had given Coleman a books of Rumi's and said, you know, you need to make this um, um, palatable for the American audience, right? The right. taste. Um, Free them from their cages, I believe he said. Exactly, exactly. And so, so Barks is already kind of in this relationship and is really kind of processing it. And I think kind of the thing that ignites it um, and really makes it very deep for him was um, this relationship with Bawa. Now, if you look at the illuminated Rumi books that Barks does with mm -hmm. Coleman Barks, um, with Michael Green, you will see pictures of Bawa throughout that book. Um, so, and I think that's the degree to which both because of that relationship and because Michael Green was also a student of Bawa, that's what resulted in Michael Green and Coleman Barks working together because they were in the fellowship community together. And so that book, Illuminated Rumi, which came out in 1997, I believe, and the essential Rumi might have come out in 1995, but he was already doing small self-published versions up to that point. Um, I think those were kind of the two important books that really catapults, right, and transforms um, kind of the ways in which Rumi gets absorbed into the contemporary popular landscape and the end of which we have not yet seen as you're seeing like Bollywood movies in the work which is raising a lot of these important issues about cultural appropriation and you know co-option of Rumi um, and uh, so yeah it's, it's, it's fascinating to see what that's going to look like and um, the book that I co-authored with Rory and also with my supervisor Mina Shirvi Fung there's a section on it that looks exactly at this phenomenon and we kind of trace it broadly to how poetry was received in by European Orientalists, especially during the Romantic era and transcendentalism, to what we're seeing with Rumi. So I don't think it's happening out of a vacuum. I think it would be unfair to realize that it's, it's not, that's not the case. It's actually the way in which Rumi is being received as part of a broader trajectory and Coleman Barks and Bawa and Michael Green are really part of that process as well, right? Um, and I think for a lot of people, I've been doing interviews in Toronto, um, trying to understand kind of how Rumi is being perceived as well, with poets, with um, members of Sufi organizations, and one of the things that one person had told me, who's a poet um, herself, she was saying that she finds that a lot of people are thirsting, like they're, they're just really wanting, and that has resulted. So yes, there might be questions about what's happening with Rumi, but the popularity also speaks to the longing that's present, right, in terms of what people are needing. Um, and you also do a lot of this work yourself, and so it speaks to the idea that people are lacking something and if this is feeding them then that's really an important thing to keep in mind as well yeah. yeah and i think too um you know it's interesting i've thought about the fact like why is rumi the kind of most universal muslim sage at least in his writings um and i think a lot of it if you look at his historical time period right he's in the seljuk empire in Anatolia in a time where it's kind of the newly 
Islamicized region, but there's other, there's Turkic tribes and shamanic peoples and Christians and Byzantines. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are Muslim, but they're kind of newly Muslim, right? right? They're, they're, and so he, he's in a context, but Rumi, of course, he studied in, in, in Damascus and in, you know, Aleppo. So he learned Arabic and, you know, but he has to speak in a sense to a very diverse crowd a very multicultural crowd. And, and that, I think, is why on some level he lends himself to a modern, multicultural Western audience in a way that other great Sufi writers might not because their writings are much more specifically to Muslims. And, and, and there's a little bit of a, if you're not coming from within that paradigm, it may be a little bit harder. You have to do more work. And by parallel, I'm interested if you have anything to say or if you've thought about this, you know, we talk about Bawa, we talk about uh, Hazrat Inayat Khan before him, and some of these early figures that bring Sufism to the West and are very popular. We, even Muzaffar Effendi, who again is, is, is non-Arab, right, is Turkish. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, and maybe we could, if we, you know, from India, because it's a more multicultural, multi-religious environment, I wonder how much that has to do with the, the reason that these individuals that are coming from those regions are successful. And also, I think, you know, you can't, we also would have to say, well, the Western mentality psychology in a moment when they're looking at Indian gurus as like this source of great wisdom, right? Because the Beatles are going to India to seek knowledge and, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and not let alone, you know, the kind of, you know, Richard Alpert's and the, you know, but it's this really popular thing. So I'm wondering to what extent you've thought about that, um, that it's Indian Muslims um, and then Persian poets that, Westerners really take in, whereas there's not so much interest in maybe, uh, you know, you don't find a lot of people interested in Ibn al-Farid, for instance, right? This great Arab uh, Sufi poet. Um, Ibn al-Arabi is a little bit different, but yeah. So anyway, he might be the one exception on some level. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating that both Ibn al-Arabi and Rumi, and Rumi more so than Ibn al-Arabi, but has been, these have been figures that have tapped into this, right? And their universalism is coming from an Islamic particularity, which is what I think a lot of people find difficult to digest, right? Mm -hmm. I think that that universalism is coming from a Quranic ethos because that's not the, the mandate or the stereotypes or the binaries that they've been exposed to, that this, you know, the Quran is dry, legalistic, whereas for Rumi and Ibn al-Arabi, they are, you know, they're tasting something different. And that taste is what is manifesting into this universalism that we find so appealing in our 21st century that is anti-religion, anti-institution, anti-any of this stuff, right? So I think it's also important to, to keep in mind what their springboard is, and their springboard is their Islam, their springboard is their Quran, right? And so that, of course, influences the trajectory in which would it manifests. And I think Rumi and Ibn al-Arabi's legacy in the contemporary spiritual world is very much important for that. Um, and it's also important to realize that, like, I mean, as 
corny as it sounds, love in some ways is the, the message, right? Uh, love, not, you know, budud, not in the sense of like human love or the sexual love that we may think of, but like ultimately the divine is love. And I think that's someone that, something that most people are able to relate to because love is in many ways human quality, but to think of it as the essence of the divine, right? And so then there's certain attributes in those poems or themes that are more relatable when it comes to particular, um, ways in which to experience the divine. But again, as you're saying, it's coming from a particular cultural and religious context, which I think most people don't think about. They just receive the message and they receive the theme instead of thinking about that Rumi was a Muslim, he was a scholar, he was coming from these trainings that make him um, very traditional and very, you know, theologian, right? Um, and in that regard, I mean, Ibn al-Arabi becomes very important to the way in which Sufism is experienced in South Asia. Right, this idea of this notion of Wadad al do this idea that you could experience the divine and that the divine is consistently manifesting him or herself through every moment, and that manifestation is still a limitation of the experience of the full divinity of the divine. Right, I mean, and so this idea that that manifestation is ongoing influences a way in which Sufism is received into the South Asian landscape when it's encountering Buddhism, when it's encountering Hinduism or other religious traditions. And so it becomes far more malleable when that's the trajectory in which you experience that, right? Because you have a lot of traditions in South Asia where Hindus do not convert to Islam to be with a particular Sufi peer or Sufi sheikh, right? And so when people notice that Bawa in America, I often say, well, Bawa did this in South Asia and Sri Lanka, and that's a part of a broader legacy. And so it's not new. The American Bawa is not new. It's actually far reflective of the Sri Lankan Bawa. We just think in really short periods instead of thinking in expansive or this is a broader trajectory. Um, so the idea that maybe Christians and Jews didn't convert in America is one thing, but the idea that Bawa Hindu students didn't convert, why is you know that more or less authentic? I think we have a sense of what authenticity of Sufism constitutes. I think South Asia is a great example because for a long time a lot of people thought Sufism there was not authentic because Hindus were practicing it or it was too polytheistic or all these things that were too like innovative, right? Um, and then people realize, well, no, but this is how Sufism has man you know, manifested in this particular cultural context and it's influenced the way that in which South Asians have experienced Sufism, right? It's, and so um, Hazrat Ayyad Khan is very much a product of a particular Shishji lineage. And so when people talk about Hazrat Ayyad Khan's you know, universal Sufism that manifests in America in the early 1900s, um, Ziyad Khan writes, well, no, actually, this is the legacy of my grandfather's Shishti South Asian tradition. This is the universalism that he experienced as a Muslim man with Shishti Sufism. And so he's not really innovating anything. He's actually you know, continuing the legacy that he's inherited in the ways he experienced South Asian Sufism. So I have I have thought about it a lot for particular South Asian Sufism, but I've also thought about it more of Sufism as a whole. And this is why the transnational context was so important, because they wanted people to understand that yes, Sufism is developing the American context, and there's some, like things are variable, the historical legacy is different, yes. But when we take a step back and look at the broader trajectory, the transnational trajectory, we start realizing, oh, this is not just like happening in America, this happened in South Asia. And this is what Sufism historically has done. It has gone to new regions. It has adapted and transformed, but also continued in those new regions. And culture has impacted the way in which Sufism is going to be received, right? Um, as culture often does. But there is also some continuity. There is this, you know, um, fundamental monotheism. Um, there is this devotion to the legacy of the Prophet Muhammad. There's, you know, devotion to particular teachers. Um, so I think that's, that is very, very important. And so we could say this about Turkish Sufism. We could 
say this about Persian Sufism, the Namatulahi Sufis, you know, are also very important in the British and then also uh, North American context, right? Um, so we could go through all these different Sufi teachers and think about the ways in which, where they've come from and how they've maintained some of that continuity of their cultural experience of Sufism into a new post context. And sometimes the teachers make decisions. They say, we're not going to do this thing anymore. We are going to do this thing anymore. And each different teacher is going to make these individual decisions. And with Bawa, I really noticed that a lot of the things that he was doing was really coming from a Sri Lankan and South Asian context. You know, farming was not something he just started doing in Pennsylvania. He was doing it in Sri Lanka, right? These Maulids and these vicars, all the stuff, the stuff that he was doing in, in Sri Lanka that he continued into America. So that was important for me to show is that, you know, these things that we're noticing in the American context that were kind of hesitant into that because we don't think it's authentic that it's not real islam or it's not real sufism is when we'd say okay well if we think that it's more real over there let's go over there and see what's happening there and then we're like oh they're also doing it there right so how does that shift our thinking about how we think about western sufism or north american sufism or this question that there's only certain people of a particular culture or ethnic group that can practice it authentically and other people of an ethnic cultural group cannot practice it authentically right but this question is beyond like South Asian Sufism or North American Sufism because this question has followed Sufism from its inception. Is Sufism fundamentally Islamic? You know, does how does one practice it? Is it, you know, part of the legacy or not? And so this I think really opens up this broader question of the challenges we're seeing and the ways in which some Sufis are perceived in our contemporary landscape, right? That they're not real Muslims, that they're doing something that's heretical or blasphemous or dishonoring the legacy of the Quran or something like this, right? And so I think this is also highlighting or amplifying that that issue. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And um I don't know if you listen, but Rory and I we did a recent podcast called Sufism Contested. And we basically were talking about that, that like Sufism is contested from two angles, from within Islam, right? With the kind of like Salafi Wahhabi kind of thing, like this isn't part of real Islam. And then it's also contested in the West with Westerners and West, you know, the kind of Orientalists and then popular culture, new age kind of interpreting it in its own way. And so those who are kind of like, for lack of a better word, word, kind of like traditionalist Sufis, Islam, Iman, Ihsan, traditionalists, kind of trying to say like, no, Sufism isn't, right? They're trying to prove to their kind of co-religionists, it's safe, you know, like this is part of, you know, and then they want to maybe kind of minimize <laughs> some of the portions of, of Rumi or of Ibn al-Arabi or Hafiz or the great Sufis that, how do you explain that, you know what I mean, et cetera. So, alhamdulillah, these are really fascinating topics, and uh, I really thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, I'm sure there's so much more we could go into, um, but I'd, I'd love to hear if you think there's anything else about Bawa and this book that you want, would want to mention that you didn't get a chance to mention, and then uh, anything um, uh, I'd love to hear about um, what you're working on now as well. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think there's, we've covered a lot of the book. So uh, again, the book just covers, um, I'm really interested in spaces um, and Bawa has a, um, a Mazar space also in Jaffna. And so he had dedicated it to the Virgin Mary because he had a mystical relationship with Mariam. And so he created it as a, a mosque. And he believed that when Mariam 
was after Jesus' death or Isa's death, um, she had gone and Bawa had given refuge to her. And so, and so this really signals this other narrative where Bawa has lived in other eras, not in the physical body that we've experienced him. And so it's part of this idea that he, again, is coming from this lineage of Aldrilani and um, he's lived in other forms, right? And, and so some people do believe that he may come again in another form. And these are just stories you'll hear from different people in the community. Um, and so one of the other things I do in the book is I spend time in Sri Lanka and Jaffna and at this space. I mean, also kind of unpack what the space means um, and the legacy of it. And so they were really two Mazar spaces. Um, and again, talk about how one manifests in, um, in America as well and the differences. So yeah, you could read the book if you want to find out more about that. Um, and in terms of what I'm working on right now, so I'm working on two things. Um, I'm working on a book on Sufism in Toronto, um, partly because I'm based out of Toronto and um, a lot of my own relationship with Sufism has manifested in Toronto. Um, and so this is more to honor the different people um, and communities that I've been part of. So I'm just doing interviews at the moment, collecting some data. And, um, and this project really actually emerged with a conversation that Rory and I had about working on something on Sufism in Canada, which is kind of a crazy big project. And so I'm just doing something smaller to get started. Um, and the other project, which is more probably going to be something that I might have to take to the grave with me because it's going to take some long time. Um, and primarily, again, because of my relationship with Sri Lanka and all this stuff, I'm working on a project on uh, Sufi shrines in Sri Lanka. Um, so Sri Lanka right now um, is going through some series of stuff, um, partly um, nation state issues because it's a Buddhist state. Um, there are growing Salafi tendencies that do not agree with Sufism. Um, and But the island, um, I don't know if you know, but there's a place called Adam's Peak on it, which a lot of Sufis believe was a place that Adam fell to after he was expelled from heaven. And so there's a huge um, legacy of Sufi shrines and pilgrimage to the space, and a lot of which I discovered through studying Bawa. And so Mora, as an honoring of that, I'm trying to unpack um, what these shrine spaces are, also partly because a lot of them are being destroyed at the moment. So it's more of a memorial project to kind of unpack what Sufism in Sri Lanka is. So those are the two kind of projects that I'm working on right now. Yeah. Have you been to the Pomegranate Mosque? In no. Sri Lanka? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? There's this mosque that looks like a pomegranate. It's really beautiful. The red, the red, the red mosque. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you been to Sri Lanka? Never, but I, I, I love that mosque. I look at pictures of it all the time. Yeah, it's quite beautiful. It's in, it's in that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Well, mashallah, is there any place um, online that people can find your work or your books or your musings? Yeah, um, I just have a boring faculty website page. So if they go to Queen's University, um, the religion department, they could find me under my name. And yeah, so there's just some information. But yeah, I'm not really on any other social. Okay, we'll put the link to that, inshallah. Okay, cool. Thanks. Alhamdulillah. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks.